First John chapter 2, verse 12 through 27 is what we're going to look at tonight. First John, it's right near the end of the Bible. First John 2, 12 through 27. And I want to uh, just start by asking a question. Um, a question you've probably thought about before, uh, considered before. But like, do you all have ever have doubts in your faith? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was thinking about a couple different kind of doubts that that maybe maybe the early church that John is writing to were struggling through. Uh, one, and I think this is relatable to us. One is following Jesus. They may wonder really better than following the ways of the world or just the course of the world. Like, is it really better? Another doubt they may have had is, and I've felt this one before, honestly, am I being naive believing what I believe? Like this simple gospel message, Jesus, the Son of God, he's my Savior. Like, have you ever felt like, ah, is this just kind of like some childish little message that I believe? Um, or maybe somebody's tried to, like, make you feel ignorant by like out-talking you and trying to talk at some spiritual, philosophical level that they're just talking circles around you, so and they seem way smarter than you to the point that you just think, wow, you know, maybe they have, they sound really smart, maybe they have something. Like, am I really? Is what I believe like really? Am I just naive in believing this? Um, and I think First John, our passage tonight, First um, John two. It gives us encouragement and it gives us assurance. Not with John like presenting some like crafty argument, like here's how you can, like here's the apologetics of why you can know this or that. He's not like trying to present some logical um, flowing argument, but he's using a different kind of appeal tonight. Um, and it's an appeal to what the church already knows. And I'd say for us, it's an appeal to what we already know. So it's not an invitation. John isn't giving some invitation, as, as these doubts maybe were in the people's minds, not giving an invitation to, uh, like, consider something new. Well, here's some new information that might help change your mind or might help uh, help you have less, less doubt or help your belief. It's not a new way to look at it, but he's really telling them, look back into what you already know, what you've already been delivered, what's already been confirmed in your heart by the Spirit, like we'll talk about. So um, that's kind of uh, what I hope, um, kind of where I hope we'll kind of head tonight. So last week, Randy brought up a really important point. I think it's an important point about the tone of what John is writing. Because if you reach into 1 John and you grab a few verses out, it it might have the ability to sound kind of like John's just pointing his finger and saying, like kind of judgmentally, you need to confess your sins and you need to stop sinning and start living righteously and keep God's commandments and you guys just need to start loving each other. Um, it, it could sound kind of uh, harsh like that. But as Randy was, was saying, it, instead, that's, that, that's not the tone that John's speaking. He's like this old pastor, and he's saying, little children, 
and, and listen, listen to the difference of this. He's saying, little children, we have forgiveness of sin, he said in the first chapter, and cleansing. Like, let's walk in the light. He says, because you know the Father, keep his commandments and love each other. And hey, some don't regard the way that God calls us to live, but don't let them deceive you. Walk in the light. Abide in him. So if you can like, hear the difference there, it's not just this, hey, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that. There is like stern warning, but the warning is about the deceivers that are trying to deceive uh, some of the people in the church, trying to throw God's people off track. And so this is an encouragement, though, to believers. I hope we see it. Gosh, if we don't leave encouraged at the end of this book, I, we, we've not understood it correctly. It, um, but this is John, like, 60 years after Jesus or so, saying, hey, what you guys have believed, what we know to be true, things haven't changed. You're okay. Like, you're, there's new thoughts trying to be introduced, and, but, but y'all, we're okay. Like, we know the truth, and I hope it's an encouragement to us, too. And I think that's why John, like where we start tonight, he goes into some kind of poetic language in, in verses 12 through 14. Your, your Bibles might have those kind of like um, indented out a little bit. And it certainly is a little more artistic way that he starts expressing some things. I think it's meant to be an encouragement. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these three verses or much time at all. But I just want to read them and let them be the encouragement that I think John is trying to encourage these early uh, church members with. And then we'll move on. And so John talks in verse 12 to 14 to um, different ages, fathers, children, young men. I, I think probably he's, he's not talking specifically about ages, but maybe more like hey, spiritual ages. People who have known Christ a long time or a short time, I'm not sure. But... Um, after giving some kind of negative examples, talking about people who are liars and deceivers and people who are full of hate, John wants to comfort people who believe and um, uh, just remember this background. I was just sharing with Eric. There's this background of there's people who seem to be bringing false ideas into the church, causing them to question, hey, do I really have uh, true life? Or is there something more? Am I missing something? Is there some sort of additional knowledge or additional enlightenment that I need to have? And so you can just imagine, like, John going into this next little section in his teaching. And I'll just read it for us. Verses 12 through 14 of chapter 2. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. I want to just maybe have somebody else read that section again. And just listen to the encouragement. For those who are walking in the light, for those of us who are confessing sin, we're growing in Christ-likeness as we know God and love, be encouraged as, as we read this again in what we already, some of these truths that we already know to be true. So somebody just read the, 
read those three verses again, 12 through 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. All right, that's, there's more to be said probably about those verses, but I just, I think that the idea is, is an encouragement of the believers, so I'll just stop there. Um, going on in verse 15, Here's where he transitions to. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life or the pride of possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, when John uses the word world, like he definitely is not talking about just the material world like we've already talked about like God created the world it's good there's nothing wrong with it, like earth per se um, but the way that John is using world here and often does and many other writers in the New Testament use it um, is it's talking about life as it goes on under the world or in the world under the influence of the evil one or life in this finite existence in its in its rebellious state against God. Like that's the more the idea of the world. And so we see in verse 13 and 14 what we read a minute ago, you have overcome the evil one. Overcome the that verb is it's a the way that it's used, it, it's a something has happened in the past that has ongoing consequences. That's the, the type of verb that it is. And so he's saying in essence, Christ has overcome the evil one in, in Christ's death and resurrection, and in him now we continue to overcome the evil one. It's kind of the sense of that. So you can see then the transition from, from verse 14 into 15. He says, you have overcome the evil one, he tells the young men. You have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world in the sense that it's under the influence of the evil one. You've overcome that in Christ, so don't love the world who is still under the, the rule, in some ways, of the evil one. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's like how we can't listen to what he's just described in that beautiful, poetic, encouraging language and, and then move from that into, oh, and I also just really love you know, the things of the sinful world. He's saying, no, you've, like, in Christ, we've overcome the evil one, and your sins are forgiven. Don't love the sin in the world. It's not the only time in Scripture that um, we see, hey, you can't, you can't have love for God and love for the world at the same time. James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, I think he's using world in the same sense, um, makes himself an enemy of God. And then we saw in Matthew, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God 
and money or, or worldly things, worldly possessions. And so he goes on, like in those verses, he in 15 and 16, he describes then what the world, like what loving the world looks like. And he says, here's all that is in the world. In verse 16, he says, it's desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride and possessions. So um, without uh, spending too much time here, desires of the flesh, um, maybe that's just, I want to, the, the desires that we have in our flesh of just like having whatever temporarily satisfies us, whatever maybe makes us comfortable or feel good kind of in the moment. Desires of the eyes, maybe it's covetousness or greed or things that we see. I don't want that. Um, pride in possessions or pride in life. I want people to recognize me. And it's, I think those, those are a really good summary of a lot of, uh, of just the things that are undesirable or that we shouldn't be shooting for here in the world. And if you want another way to remember it, I've heard it's what feels good, what looks good, and what makes me look good. Um, and obviously, what feel, there's certain things that feel good in our Christian life that are, that are good, that God wants for us. But what feels good as far as just a temporary kind of selfish feel good? What feels good, what looks good, what makes me look good? There's, um, I'd love to spend time looking at this. I think there's really striking comparison with the, the sin, the temptations and desires of Eve in the garden with the fruit that is... Um, good to the taste and good to the eyes and desirable for making one wise or whatever. And then Jesus' temptations that, that Satan tempts him with are kind of three of the same types of things, a flesh and eyes, a pride type thing. Um, I don't know that that's like, I don't want to necessarily read that into there, but it does, it gives us just kind of this picture, and John here gives us this picture of the ways that we can love the world, really. And so we'll just pause for a minute and say, hey, what ways do we, you don't have to answer this out loud, but just consider what ways do I sometimes love the world and love just what feels good? Maybe temporary pleasures, maybe it's laziness, promiscuity, um, unhealthy eating habits. There's tons of things you can probably put in there. What looks good, like covetousness or more money, I wish I could have that. Or what makes me look good? How do you, how do you, we fall into those, that, that love for the world. You don't want answers, right? I, yeah, I don't. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I wasn't. Just making expecting. sure. Yeah. So um, I gave a long pause, though, so that might have yeah. been confusing. Yeah. Sure. Um, but I think maybe why John kind of brings this up. It, these kind of seem like a couple random sections in the book, um, but I think why he brings it up, uh, or part of it, is just he's described, he, like you're really going to chase those worldly desires when you know that your sins are forgiven because of Jesus. You know that you know the eternally existent God who, in whom you've overcome the evil one, like with all of those true realities that you know, are you sure, like, don't, don't love the world. That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And not only that, but he goes on to say, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if you're weighing it out, like, we'll play would you rather for just a second. Like, would you rather revel in the forgiveness of sins, which has made you forever right with the one who's existed from the beginning and has overcome the evil one so that you can abide forever? Like, would you rather kind of enjoy that and revel in that? Or would you rather live for the desires of the world and kind of the piddly 
gratifications that you might get now, which are soon to pass away. It's like, do you want a Tesla or do you want some dilapidated roller skates? You know, like the roller skates, they're gonna be fun for a little while, right? Like they're, oh, that's gonna be cool. But no, it's, it's hopefully there's, there's no comparison. <laughs> and so I think just kind of to, to drop back to one of the first questions I was asking is Jesus, is following Jesus really better than following the ways of the world? Um, when, when that doubt maybe comes up, I think verses 12 through 14, what we started with, are just good uh, to remember and kind of capture the tone of John. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John's not pointing an angry finger, saying, you better sin less. He's saying, do you know what you have? Don't love the world. See. Um, so moving on, John kind of goes on to speak about evidences of true life. Like we're kind of asked the question, um, how do we know that we truly have eternal life or how do we know who has eternal life? And if you remember, um, last week a couple of topics came up that Randy was, uh, was teaching through that uh, that kind of points to the fact that, that people either do or, or don't have eternal life. They're indicators, you could say. Um, and a couple of those characteristics that attest to true life that somebody actually has. Um, chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know, he says, this is review, by this we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. And conversely, he kind of says, those that don't keep his commandments, they don't really know him. Chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Conversely, if you don't love your brother, if you hate your brother, then you're abiding in darkness. So we can't be assured of true life for ourselves or for anyone that matter, of eternal life, if we have no regard for the commands of Jesus, especially his greatest command, which is to love. That just doesn't, that doesn't line up. That's not, that wouldn't show evidence that we have uh, life. And there's one more characteristic that John brings up tonight that we're going to look at that kind of attests to, yes, you do have true life. Look at, what, um, look at what's going on. And this one isn't like what we'll talk about now. It's not so much like an action of our faith, like doing what Jesus commands, and you can look at somebody's life and how they love their brothers, but it actually involves a little bit more of the content of our faith, like what we know about God. And um, so in verse 18... John says, children, it is the last hour. Things are, are wrapping up on earth. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, John speaks of Antichrist or the Antichrist elsewhere um, as kind of God's... Um, final opponent in the end time, an, an actual uh, like person or entity. Um, and 
John's saying that, but e even before then, and now even in John's day, there are antichrists, or those who, they kind of, I guess they seem to be like forerunners of the one who is to come. They're not the antichrist, but they have, like chapter 4 says, they have the spirit of the antichrist. So they're kind of um, forerunners and teaching something similar. And in verse 19, he says of, of these antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not, that they all are not of us. So there's a principle here that we've been talking about, like we've mentioned this, I think almost every week so far, but a principle that those who are in God's family, uh, they stay with God's family. If you have fellowship with God, if you have fellowship then because of that, with the church. You can't stay in fellowship with God and exit God's people. It doesn't work. Like we've seen that, um, like I said, I think every week we've talked about that. And even like we learned last week, you can't love God and not love the people of God. In time, your, your love for God's people grows necessarily out of your, because of your love for God. And so there's these, these people um, who... We're not demonstrating that. They went out from us, he said. And we've kind of alluded to the fact, even earlier tonight, I said that there's these people who have gone out and we're teaching something different than, or something new, some sort of spiritual enlightenment or spiritual experience or special knowledge that kind of could, that a few people had. And if you had this special knowledge, you could be kind of one step closer to the divine or you could kind of rise above um, the, this world and the nastiness of this world if you just could kind of reach this higher level of consciousness or of knowledge or whatever. And so they're teaching that and then John goes on, he goes to tell them in verse 20, but you, and that's a plural you, like you all have been anointed by the Holy One. This is kind of like probably as opposed to those who went out, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth but because you know it and because no truth is, no lie is of the truth. You already know the truth. You don't need a higher truth. You don't need any special knowledge on top of what you have. So back up just a little bit where it says in verse 20, you've been anointed by the Holy One. Anointing. Um, oftentimes in scripture, if somebody's anointed, it's with what? Oil. Oil. Yeah. Um, doesn't sound exactly like what John's talking about here. Um, like if you look at verse 27, especially he's a little bit further down, he says, the anointing that you received from him abides in you. Like, and the anointing teaches you about everything. I probably, probably he's not talking about oil here. Um, Jesus, the Messiah, or the anointed one, he was anointed at his baptism, not with oil, but Acts 10 talks about how he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And Paul talks um, kind of similarly about Christians in 2 Corinthians 1 um, when he says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, he says, and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So I think that there's a... I don't want to go so far as to say exactly, but this anointing, and it develops a little further on in the book as well, as there's more talk about the Holy Spirit. But I think the anointing involves the Spirit 
that confirms in us the truth that we've been taught. Okay, that's something that we have as believers, as those who possess eternal life. And we'll talk more about that in, in, in the future chapters. But he's telling them you already have the truth and it's confirmed by the spirit which you have, you've been anointed with, and you don't need someone else to come along and teach you something different than what the spirit has already confirmed and the truth that's already been revealed to you in the teaching of the apostles or the word of God as we have it. Um, and then John goes on to speak a little more directly about, specifically about the teachings maybe. This is kind of some of the most direct stuff we have about what those people who had gone out are actually saying or where they're actually uh, missing out or what they're actually trying to uh, communicate. He clearly states, here's the main false belief in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So what's the significant false belief that these antichrists are teaching? They're denying that Jesus is the Christ. They're striking at the very like identity of who Jesus is. If you remember, Christ just is the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah, um, especially it seems like in the period of time that John is writing, is almost synonymous with Son of God. Like those two terms, even in chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 5, he uses the Messiah or Christ and Son of God almost interchangeably, like they kind of equal the same thing in his mind. And so this false belief is denying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, it's something very similar to what the same author, John, the Apostle John, says in the Gospel of John. When he says, here's the purpose of why I'm writing the Gospel of John, he says, it's so that, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. True life is found as we believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And John, y'all, he's super black and white here saying, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you don't believe the truth. And notice, this isn't like, this isn't a, a heresy, or this isn't just a little like, oh, this, this church or this teacher just has a doctrine. It's just off a little bit, but it's okay. No, he's saying the, the people who are teaching this are liars, and he calls them antichrist. They're, they're against Christ. It's, it's not just some little, oh, we can, we can just get over this little false belief. This is a very significant thing in John's mind, and it's, it's you could say, diabolical. Like, he's saying this, this is an evil teaching, those who are denying those that are apart from Christ. He even says in verse 22, he says, who is, who is the liar? At other parts of John and other places, they say a liar. Well, this person is a liar, this person is a liar. But the way that he uses the word liar here is like he's who is the liar of all liars? Or who is the liar, what do they say, par excellence? Who's, who, that liar uh, is the one who says that Jesus isn't the Christ or isn't the Son of God. So here's where we're going with that. Christians, those who can be assured of true eternal life, have a particular belief in Jesus. And it's that he is the Son of God, which means he's divine. 
And the man, we'll talk a little bit about later, but the man who came in the flesh is also divine. He's also God, the Son of God. And so if you want a quick test to know, hey, are you, am I dealing with a cult or not? Well, one way that you're going to find out is you're going to find out, well, what do they believe about Jesus? And if somebody is teaching that Jesus isn't the Son of God, John would say, don't be deceived. And these people are um, working for the other team. Um, And there's plenty of those out there today, too. Even people going by the, the Christian name, but, but denying the, the sonship of Jesus, the, the divine nature of Jesus. Um, that, that's Unitarians, that's Jehovah's Witnesses, there's others. Um, and then what he says here is, if you don't have the Son, you also don't have God the Father. Uh, from the beginning of the book, we've seen fellowship with the Father means fellowship with the Son and fellowship with the church, and it's all wrapped up together. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he's made to us, eternal life. How do we know what's one of the indicators that we have eternal life? We believe and confess Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. And somebody that goes around even maybe calling themselves a Christian, maybe claiming to love God, maybe claiming, hey, I follow what the Bible teaches, maybe they even esteem Jesus as a good teacher. If they deny Jesus, the identity of Jesus as the Son of God or as the Messiah then according to John, they, that person doesn't have the promise of eternal life. And he's saying, this, this isn't a new teaching. This is what you've heard from the beginning. And if somebody tries to change your mind in this, watch out. In verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. Again, I believe he's talking about the spirit and, and his revelation that he gives to us of the truth of the word. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, briefly, John is not suggesting that we shouldn't have teachers. Um, maybe obviously, because he's teaching them this message right now. Um, and there's plenty of... New Testament example about God gifting the church with teachers and how we need that as a part of our lives. Um, but John is saying that we don't need to have, we don't need to be taught something in addition to what the word, what, what you've heard from the beginning and what the spirit, this anointing have already confirmed in our hearts. So yeah, we have teachers that help us to dig the depths of that knowledge of, of what God's given to us, of what he's already revealed to us. But no one ought to come along and say then, oh, well, let's, let, I want to tell you something else. Check out this new thing, this additional thing, this next level. This one I'm going to take you to a new place in your relationship with God and your understanding of him. This message that I think this is a big part of what he's telling this message that you all have heard from the beginning, let that abide, or another word for abide is let that remain in you. It's a continual, unchanging perfection. And 
y'all, we are declaring the same message that Christians for uh, almost 2,000 years have been proclaiming, and it hasn't changed. And that message which you which you received when you heard and first came to faith in Christ and were saved, it hasn't changed, and it's never going to change from that. We believe Jesus was he is eternally God. He was eternally pre-existent with God the Father. He became incarnate. He put on flesh here on this earth. He was the perfect son of God. He died. He rose from the dead. And now he continues to exist with the Father in heaven. And if a Christian starts, a Christian, quote unquote, starts to proclaim a different message, a message that, that diminishes the identity of Jesus, John would say, and he's speaking on God's behalf who inspired him to write this, John would say that person is a liar. And whether they know it or not, they're working on the team of Satan in that. Antichrist. Now, just so you all know, um, I'm not immediately concerned about this, about us being close to this doctrine within kind of our core group of people here in our church. Like, I haven't hint or heard any hints of, of, of that creeping into our church thus far, that Jesus isn't the Son of God and so forth. But I will say, the area that we live in, Hollywood, L.A., like, this is an area that is flooded with an idea that's going to try to take the person of who Jesus is and strip him of his, of his divinity and try to say, oh, yeah, we're, we accept him and he taught good and that's a good thing. But you guys know that it's a common thing um, here where we live and this teaching, we, we, can't, we, we can't allow it in our church. And so um, kind of to get back, to this question, um, just wrapping up here. Um, like, where do we find confidence in our eternal life? Yes, as we've learned our obedience to Jesus, that that should be a priority for us. We need to like guard His commands, and they have value to us. Our love for our brothers should be a growing reality in our life. But kind of the third thing that he adds on to this is there's this fundamental belief that we hold on to, and it's the belief in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. And that's the truth that's passed down by the apostles here in Scripture and it's confirmed in our heart by God's Spirit. And John says, if you don't hold to that, you don't really know the Son, and if you don't really know the Son, you don't know the Father. And really what, what John is saying, kind of the, I think what he's writing here is more they don't know the Son, and they who are teaching these things, then they don't really know the Father, because they've veered from what he's revealed to us in his word. But kind of what John, I would say, is saying to the believers positively is, hey, if the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has confirmed in your heart the, and given you faith that about the word that you've heard from the beginning when you first believed this word about Jesus as the Son of God and his death and resurrection. And if your life reflects that in obedience and you're growing in Christ-likeness and love, then this is the promise that he's made to us. Eternal life, he says. And we're going to kind of rehash, as Randy said last week, John kind of talks in a circular fashion. He kind of keeps coming back to some same themes. We're going to talk a lot about obedience or righteousness. We're going to talk a lot about love. We're going to talk a lot about what we confess, the truth about Jesus. Um, 
but those are those are themes like that's kind of we've kind of reached the first progression of 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 the teaching in first john of um what gives evidence of those who believe and it involves the way that we live that's not what makes us saved or gives us belief but that gives evidence to it and involves of course what we believe and specifically what we believe about jesus um so just to summarize those two questions maybe that we periodically have doubts with i don't know if you all have doubts in these same areas but is following Jesus really better than following the ways of the world? And John would say, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. You have forgiveness of sin. You overcome the evil one. And the world's passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Yes, following Jesus is way, it, it makes sense. If you truly know what you have, yes, it's, it's better. And, and the doubt of, hey, am I being naive, believing what I believe, this kind of simple gospel message that came to me that, that, that Jesus is God's son and died in my place, he's my savior. John would say, hey, I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, like I don't need to tell you something that you don't know, but because you know it. And there's no need to receive something different, something additional, some higher level of understanding. You already know the truth, and your the Spirit is confirmed in your heart, this unchanging truth of God's Word. And y'all, if we know the Father, like he says in verses 12 through 14, and if we confess the Son like he does in the later passages, he would say, don't be deceived, you have eternal life. 